Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Titus chapter 2. In the first chapter of this epistle, Paul's focus was on proper conduct within the church. He wanted Titus to set things in order and to appoint elders who would be able to teach and, when necessary, correct and restrain. In chapter 1, Paul was stretching Titus as a leader. Here in the second chapter, Paul is stretching Titus as a teacher. He is challenging him to instruct each individual in the church on how to live as a Christian in a variety of different relational contexts. The NIV Zondervan Study Bible has an interesting note here remarking upon this transition. It says, along with oversight, referencing chapter 1, verse 7, a pastor's chief duty is to teach, for Christians are by definition disciples or learners, closed quote. I think that's a helpful reminder. It certainly was for Titus, who, as we've said, appears to have been heavily gifted in the area of administration. He was Paul's fix-it man. But he was also a pastor, and as a pastor, he needed to teach. Specifically here, he's being told to teach people what it looks like to know, love, and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's just pause here for a moment. Sometimes I feel like the first rule of biblical interpretation ought to be ignore all chapter and verse divisions. (laughs) Obviously, we can't do that, and I'm not saying that you should do that, but it does feel sometimes like the divisions are wildly unhelpful, and so it is here. Starting a chapter with the word but seems odd, because it is odd, but what? The word but implies a contrast to something. But to what? To get that, you have to go back to the end of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the contrast here is between the false teachers in chapter 1 and Titus and his ministry. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But you, Titus, you need to be teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the word sound means healthy. So Paul is telling Titus to say true things that work out in faithful, fruitful, healthy Christian living. Once again, we see the apostles' conviction that good doctrine and good living together represent the best possible antidote to error. And so Paul begins now to suggest some sound and healthy behaviors that accord perfectly with the good and faithful teaching of the gospel to which Titus has been charged. 
He deals with the full range of people that Titus could reasonably expect to have responsibility for within the local church. He begins with the older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul's counsel here is organized in two groups of three. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, and also sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Let's deal with the first trio. The word translated in the ESV as sober-minded and in the NIV as temperate most immediately refers to being moderate in the use of alcohol, but it has a broader range of meaning as well. The New International Greek Testament Commentary tends to be my go-to resource on translation issues, and they suggest the meaning here of sober in the sense of clear-headed. Older men should be encouraged towards wisdom, prudence, and sensibility. They should be discouraged from going down the rabbit hole of internet conspiracy. They should be encouraged to read, to think, and to model stability. I'm transposing that into a modern-day key, but that's the general idea. The word translated here as dignified implies that he is to act in a way that is worthy of respect. So, yes, we are to respect our elders, but here, as an elder, Paul says to other elders, act in a manner that is worthy of respect. Work toward the goal of having the young men in the church look at you and say, I want to be like that guy when I grow up. That's the idea here. The word translated as self-controlled actually has less to do with appetites and more to do with thinking. It means to control your mind, to take every thought captive, as Paul was known to say. It is easy for older men to wander off intellectually and mentally into all sorts of distracting cul-de-sacs. They can become obsessed with politics or town gossip or the general decline of the culture. Paul is telling Titus to warn against that. Keep a tight rein on your mind, older men. We need you focused on the mission we were given. Following that, we have a version of the classic Pauline triad. Paul is often found talking about hope, faith, and love, though here it is faith, love, and steadfastness. That version of the triad is found in three other places in the New Testament, so it seems to have been a favorite of Paul's. Steadfastness is, of course, a version of hope. It has to do with enduring difficulties in light of the future that we're looking forward to in Christ. And as such, it is particularly useful here as a charge given to older people. Paul would have Titus charged these older men to set an example in sound Christian living characterized by faith, love, and steadfastness. He moves on now to what Titus should be teaching to the older women. Now, before we read that, let's just pause and notice that Paul expects Titus to have a teaching ministry to older women. I think there are segments of the evangelical world that have overreacted to the gender debate, such that they have over-segregated the congregation along male and female lines. I know of pastors who won't meet with females, at least not one-on-one. And, and while I think it's wise to have safeguards in place, such as open doors, uh, secretaries checking in, tons of transparency, etc. I think that a pastor who refuses to meet with women is robbing women of the development and training that they deserve. 
Paul expects Titus to be training older women. Titus is the head of the women's ministry department in the church at Crete. He's maximally involved, and I think that's worth noticing. Let's not be more conservative than the Bible. Pastors should be training women how to preach and teach and train other women. All right, let's get into that. In verse 3, Paul says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The Greek word translated by the ESV as reverent is actually a very interesting word. It's used only once in the New Testament, right here, and it literally means holy or even priestly. The idea is that since all believers are now priests and priestesses, we should reflect that in our daily behavior. That's true for all people generally, but for older people in particular. Older people, presumably, are more mature and have had time to gain mastery over some of the complexities of youth, shall we say. So Paul is calling for a very high bar here in terms of the sort of behavior he expects from older women. They are to be priestly, holy, dignified in their behavior, not slanderers or malicious gossips and certainly not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Let's pause there for a moment. If we're going to be fair and honest with the Apostle Paul, we will have to look at both sides of this particular coin. Paul does say in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Closed quote. But now here in Titus 2.4, he says they, these older women, are to teach what is good. So putting that together... It would seem that Paul isn't saying that women can't teach, period. Rather, he is saying that in the gathered assembly, when the church is all together for their times of corporate worship, the male elders, who are analogous to the fathers in the home, should take the lead in giving the formal authoritative teaching. The phrase, remain quiet, in 1 Timothy 2.12, is not an absolute prohibition on speaking or teaching, but rather has the sense of stand down. In the corporate gathering, Paul is telling the women to pull back or to stand down and to allow the male elders to step forward. But then, as we see here, the expectation is that women are to be active in teaching and mentoring each other. Thus, it wouldn't be accurate or fair to say either that Paul forbids all teaching to women or that he ignores all differentiation between men and women in the church. Both of those statements, both of which you will hear made frequently in various segments of evangelicalism, appear to lean too heavily on one of these texts at the expense of the other. Here, Paul says that he wants women to teach other women what is good. In verse 4, he provides a summary as to what that entails. He mentions the need to teach younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, most of that is fairly straightforward, even if it does sound wildly offensive to the modern ear. In essence, Paul is saying that older women should teach and mentor younger women on how to be a, a wife, a mother, and a homemaker. 
Now, to say that women should be taught how to work at home certainly does not imply that they cannot work outside the home. We think of the Proverbs 31 woman who apparently ran a handful of thriving businesses. She made things. She sold things. She conducted real estate transactions. So she had a variety of side hustles, to use a contemporary term. But she was clearly rooted in and focused on the home. And that is what is being commended here. I will say that part of the Christian witness in this culture ought to be a concerted pushback on the idea that the home is not a worthy or respectable focus for a talented and intelligent woman. Being a mother is generally disparaged in our day and age, and that needs to be rejected and refuted for the demonic deception that it is. Raising children and creating a safe and beautiful home is an act of dominion. It is an act of leadership, and it should be respected and celebrated accordingly. The church should be a place where that role is honored and where the skills and qualities needed to excel at it are taught and stewarded. In verse 6, Paul turns his attention to the younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, at first glance, Paul's instruction seems relatively brief here. He had a six-part list for the older men and then a fairly detailed list for the older women who were to be sharing and imparting all of that with the younger women. But now here, when he gets to the younger men, he seems to have only one thing to say. They need to be taught how to be self-controlled. Now, obviously, no one would disagree with that. John Calvin says here, this is a virtue most necessary for those of that age. It is, as we know, a time of great heat, for it is exceedingly difficult to keep young men on a tight rein, closed quote. That is true, but we wonder if there should be more here. And in a sense, there is more here because Titus is a young man. And so Paul goes on to instruct him as representative of his group. He says in verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Titus is to take the lead among the young men, setting an example in self-control and also good works, integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Tim Chester says usefully here, young men need to grow up to take life seriously, to take their faith seriously, and to be responsible. There is no room in the church for living for yourself for two or more decades before beginning to live out the biblical picture of a man, closed quote. Paul's counsel seems to indicate a remarkable insight into human nature and character. The lists do appear to be geared to the temptations and challenges associated with each age, stage, and gender. Young men can be slaves to their passions, lust, and anger in particular. Christian men need to model self-control in these areas. Of course, we talk an awful lot about pornography in the contemporary church, and rightly so. But how much do we talk about anger? Do we encourage young men to be patient and to moderate their opinions on matters of politics and culture. It might be argued that intemperance in speech and opinion on these matters is doing as much or more damage to our public witness than even lack of self-control in the matter of sexual lust. Now, my point isn't to say that one is less important than we think, but rather to say that both forms of passion 
must be brought under control for the sake of our witness. Next, Paul has a word of counsel in terms of how Titus ought to pastor those who serve as slaves. He says, beginning in verse 9, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It is interesting that Paul does not here provide a parallel word to Christian masters, as he does, for example, in Ephesians 6, after saying something very similar to Christian slaves there in verses 6 to 8 of Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to say, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Close quote. Here in Titus 2, we don't have that. And we're curious about that. At least I am. None of the several commentaries that I consulted here discussed that. But I suppose the simplest answer would be that on Crete, as opposed to in Ephesus, there were no Christian masters in the church at that time. We know that Christianity was particularly attractive to women and slaves because of the status they were granted in the gospel and because of the vision of human dignity that was presented in the church. So it would not be at all surprising to discover that in these early days in Crete, the church was made up mostly of women and slaves with obviously some older and younger men sprinkled in, but none of them, apparently, anyway, being wealthy masters or managers of households and estates. To the slaves, then, Paul says that they should be taught to be submissive to their masters, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that means stealing, but rather showing good faith. As always, Paul did not concern himself with immediate social revolution. He never tells slaves to revolt against their masters, much as we might wish that he had. Paul's main concern was in getting everyone to act in a way that commended the gospel. He didn't want the Romans to reject Christianity because it made women bad wives and mothers or because it led to slave revolts and social upheaval. Paul took a slow and steady approach. He knew that if he demanded that masters treat their slaves kindly and gently, which he did, and even view them as brothers in the gospel, in Christ, eventually the institution of slavery would fall apart on its own, which is exactly what happened. The point here is that in every situation, our lives should adorn and commend the gospel. The grace of God should make us better spouses, better employees, better citizens, and better friends and neighbors. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Paul goes on to provide a theological foundation for that assertion in verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, let's just notice that salvation for Paul is a far bigger category than it is for many of us today. For many of us, salvation means something roughly equivalent to forgiveness. And to be clear, forgiveness is an absolutely 
marvelous gift that we receive by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Thanks be to God. But it is not the sum total of the gospel. It is not equivalent to salvation. Salvation must include not just freedom from the penalty of sin, but freedom also from the power of sin. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So the grace we receive through faith in Christ includes power over sin and ungodliness. Praise the Lord. Now, as a good Protestant, I would want to insist on a proper order of operations here. We receive the grace of justification prior to the gift of sanctification. We are not made holy so as to be justified. Rather, we are justified so as to be made holy. But not only is the order important, but so too is the ultimate outcome. For Paul, they are all a piece. There is progression, but there's no separation. And there ought to be less so in our thinking and conversation today. The grace of God saves us in a comprehensive way, purchasing for us and working in us both eternal and abundant life. The Tyndale New Testament commentary says here, Grace is here almost personified in its task of educating us in the art of living, closed quote. That is well and usefully said. In terms of how Paul describes good and proper Christian living, John Calvin is particularly insightful. He says, here, Paul makes the Christian life to consist of three things, holiness or reverence for God so that he is obeyed, fairness and probity toward our neighbors, and decency and self-discipline, so that we are not unruly, but are temperate and chaste, closed quote. Probity means basically honesty and uprightness. So in street-level English, Paul is saying here that Christianity basically consists of three things, reverence toward God, righteousness toward neighbor, and self-control with respect to our own behavior. That sounds not entirely dissimilar to what the Apostle James says in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The grace of God trains us toward right relations with God, with others, and also toward our own inner passions. That outcome is to be the goal of Titus's entire life and ministry among the people of Crete. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Use your authority, Titus, to impress upon people the things that really matter, the things that are going to bless them and provide them with an abundant and fruitful life and the things that are going to commend the gospel to their friends, their loved ones, and their neighbors. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. 
We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.